Hello, this is Rachel Zucker, and this is Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People, Episode 17. I spoke with poets Natalie Diaz and Roger Reeves on December 2nd, 2016, right before all three of us participated in an amazing event called Love, Especially Love at Housing Works Cafe in New York City that Natalie had organized. Natalie had asked 30 writers to write something new and short on the theme of love. I was so honored she'd asked me to participate with this group of incredible writers. I had invited Natalie to be on the podcast months earlier, but we kept having a hard time scheduling it. So it seemed like a fun and fortuitous idea to meet at her hotel a few hours before the event and record a conversation then. It seemed like a good plan, but then Natalie ran into traffic on her way into the city, and I was having a pretty low day. The combination of the election, my trip out west, writing that last lecture, the anniversary of my mother's death, my upcoming 45th birthday, a particularly difficult semester teaching, or maybe I always have a hard time as November turns to December, I don't know. But let's just say it hadn't been a great month, and it was overwhelming to write something new about love and then read it in front of an audience that included some of the best writers anywhere. And on top of that, I was worried that I would mess up what felt like a precious opportunity, the opportunity to speak face-to-face with Natalie, a poet I deeply admire but do not know very well. Add to this that the new thing I wrote for Natalie's event was so new, it wasn't finished. What had come out of me was not a poem, but a letter to my sons, my white sons, about white privilege, male privilege, heterosexual privilege, and the responsibility of those privileges. The responsibility to act out of love and with love and to use their power for good. Writing a letter to my sons had been on my to-do list already because Claudia Rankin had asked some writers to write something to their children about the new normal. So suddenly, happily, I was doing both, but at the same time, there was a chance I knew that what I had written with candor and vulnerability might come across as offensive or might actually be offensive in a way that I couldn't foresee. And the piece of writing was too new to know for sure. But I'd committed to it in my mind and had decided to read it no matter what. So standing in the lobby of the Ace Hotel on December 2nd, watching the lounging hipsters on their computers and phones, having taken all the seats, standing, waiting for Natalie, awkwardly guarding my recording equipment while balancing the pages of my draft on my knee in order to re-revise the draft that was by that point almost illegible with crossouts, waiting for Natalie, I thought about canceling. I thought about texting Natalie and saying that I'd meet her at the reading and maybe we could record a podcast conversation some other time. I fantasized about not even going to the reading, although I would never have done that. The whole thing suddenly seemed ill-fated, ill-advised, and I didn't feel up to any of it. And then there was Natalie. Full of energy and ferocity and warmth and love, as soon as I saw her, I thanked the fates or my own immobilizing indecision. And it turned out that Natalie's close friend, the poet Roger Reeves, was staying with Natalie. 
I knew and liked Roger's work a lot. I'd included a craft talk he'd given in one of my classes, but I'd never met Roger in person. I was thrilled when Roger said, sure, I could talk to them both for commonplace. Natalie Diaz is Mojave and an enrolled member of the Gila River Indian tribe. She is the author of the book, When My Brother Was an Aztec, published by Copper Canyon Press. She has taught in many places and programs, including at Princeton and currently at Arizona State University's MFA program. Natalie directs the Fort Mojave Language Recovery Program, where she works to revitalize the Mojave language. Natalie played basketball all through college and played professional basketball in Europe and Asia. Roger Reeves teaches at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He taught at Princeton the year before Natalie was there, and he is the author of the poetry collection King Me, also published by Copper Canyon Press. For more information about Natalie and Roger, the poems and poets and artists we talk about in this episode, and the organizations and events we discuss, including the Housing Works event and Standing Rock, please visit the website commonpodcast.com. I want to thank our patrons, all 27 of you as of this recording, for supporting the show. I was hoping to share the audio from the Housing Works reading as a patron bonus, but Housing Works is having some technical trouble. Patrons will get a sound file of the piece I read that night and some special goodies from Natalie and Roger. And I'm bowled over with gratitude to Copper Canyon Press for their generous donation this month of books by Jericho Brown, Natalie Diaz, and Roger Reeves. Everyone who signs up to become a new Commonplace patron in January will receive a book by one of these poets, and all our patrons will be entered in our next Commonplace raffle. So if you can, sign up to become a patron of the show. And thank you to all our listeners. Thank you for listening, for recommending the podcast to others, for rating the show on iTunes, for letting us know on Twitter, Facebook, email that you appreciate what we're doing. Cindy Watkins, one of our patrons, emailed, I was drywalling a closet while listening to the Jericho Brown podcast, and I cheered aloud, waving my taping knife, when Jericho said, I'm still here for the well-wrought line. Thanks so much for what this podcast is doing. Thank you, Cindy. We are also really excited about what this podcast is doing and about what we're hoping to do next. I'm so grateful for, as Natalie calls it, the family poetry built for me. And I am so grateful for the family this podcast is building. I hope that for you, these conversations are a version of what Natalie means when she says, let's do a wonder. I know they are for me. While I was setting up the equipment in the hotel room, I told Natalie and Roger that I'd almost canceled, that I was having a tough day, week, month, but that I had decided I don't write poems only on the good days. I don't write poems only out of my best self. I don't go to art to find the image of the artist from her best angle with her game face set. I told them that for me, poetry is the place that says, come as you are, as you really are. And that although Natalie, Roger, and I were not close friends, I hoped it was all right that I had come to them in a low, sad state. We all nodded at each other knowingly and began. (laughs) 
maybe we could start by just talking about tonight and like uh, what made you have the idea for it and what what you're looking forward to. And I'd also love to know how you guys know each other and sure. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, the event tonight, I, I think it's something I've been wanting to do with with people I love, with my friends like mm-hmm. Roger and Christian and uh, Eliza and Isha. Um, I think something the last year for me, something I learned feels like a life a life skill in that I realized, I think I always knew, but, but I know now in a, a different way, a way that lets me come to it more, is I know that I can't make it without my friends mm-hmm. and without my family. Um, and I think I know that even with my my personal family, my mother and my father, and, but I, I feel like I know it through through this chosen family, this family that I've built, this family that really uh, poetry built for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the event tonight was something that I think we've all kind of just been spinning around. Like we're always trying to find ways, like how can we get together and just be with each other? And sometimes, unfortunately, poetry lets you do that in small pieces. So we thought, you know, what if we can do an event and we're all writing and thinking toward the same thing. And, you know, along the lines of maybe less the product of poetry and more, I think, that magical, invisible thing mm. about poetry that pulls us to it, which, where I come from, is something very close to prayer. And, you know, as I was talking about this event, it's like not Christian prayer, not Western prayer, but this prayer that is kind of an energy that's before you and after you. You know, and so it's almost like a string that's being pulled through you constantly, like an endless thread that's being pulled through you. And so what if we could just put all of our voices together, think about something like love, um, all the kinds of love, all the ways of love, not just that perfect love that I think is, is a myth, but this love that says, hey, I feel a little fucked up today. You know, this love that says, you know what, this morning was tough, or this love that says, hey, you know, I know you're hurting and I'm here. This love that says you've got a beautiful little girl at home and I'm thinking good thoughts about that. You know, all of these things. So it feels just like a lucky thing to be able to do. And it feels luckier to, to know that when you call like, hey, friends, you know, they're answering like, yes, yes, mm-hmm. I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's something that I feel like I've learned. I've learned from, from Roger and, and talking with Roger and... And just from friends, from friends that have become, you know, my brothers and my sisters through poetry. Yeah, um, it's funny. I, Natalie and I, I think we were put in a crucible-esque situation. Uh, the, the first maybe three times that we were like literally together, it was a really tense moment. There were very tense moments, um, either because we were maybe the only people of color in a space uh, where. Um, quite honestly, they did not know what to do with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you very quickly build uh, kinship. And you figure out who, who you can work with in those spaces, who, who can help you stay alive. Because those spaces are about staying alive in a lot of ways and staying healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I saw that in Natalie right away. And we sort of, we had each other's back almost instantaneously. And, and it was great that she was also an amazing poet. Right, so, someone whose work I can learn from and be better from. And so, uh, yeah, we had the great fortune of being on the same press and being published near each other. And the press uh, was Cabra Canyon trying to 
sort of do something they hadn't done before. Uh, and Natalie was just such a great usher in some ways. Like when I think about Natalie, I think about her as like an ushering spirit, an ushering sensibility. She had her, her, her and, and it's not, and, and, the, and also this sort of, her aesthetic is uh, quite wide, she, what she can sort of embrace and what she's interested in. And, I, and that really appealed to me because I'm interested in, in a very sort of wide uh, swath and being very inviting in the way that I think about going about being a poet and being in the world. Mm -hmm. And when I saw Natalie, I was like, oh, man, this is a similar sort of spirit. Uh, and, and that's what happened. You know, it was, uh, I, it was this time in Seattle. I think when we really bonded. Seattle, the, the great racial crucible. <laughs> really, oh, Seattle. Yeah. It is, it's, a, it's, it's not an easy place to be a person of color there. And uh, you're on this boat. Was it a Copper Canyon event? Yeah, yeah, it was. A, we weren't on a boat, we were on a yacht. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. A yacht with side thrusters. It's like a big boat. I don't, yeah. even, I don't know what side thrusters are. But. So, side th so, you know, we generally think of boats moving forward and backwards. This okay. boat could move to the side. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, so we can move, yeah. you know, that, that's a very different, that you're on a different level when you have side thrusters. That's some privilege. Yeah, that's some, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, have a you don't even have to go forward, you can just go sideways. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The rest <laughs> of us are, are screaming <laughs> to move forward, not just going sideways. So it was, um, you know, it was just a great opportunity uh, to meet Natalie, and, we, and then we, wound up, we went up doing uh, this event, and we went to La Push. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Roger came out to the, the res there. Um, to work with some of the students there, and it was it was really incredible. It was the for me it was the first start of that. Like I'm yeah. used to doing things on my home reservation, mm -hmm. and again that's to me that was just a, a great lesson to say like yes I yes I but we mm -hmm. like we is different. Yeah, you know we yeah. is different and and yeah. So we got to to work and read with some of the the res kids there at La Push and. They loved Roger, you know, as as I knew they would. I wouldn't just take anybody out Right. <laughs> so. And the uh, thing that I think Natalie does, that I, I, one of the things that I think is she's willing to take the risk of trying something. Mm. Right. And I think that, like, it's, 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 a, it's really sort of encouraging. Uh, she's like, let's go do something great. Let's, or let's just go do something small. Let's just get together and be with each other, right? Or have this real, like, I think we need to do like something big, you know, it's like, Natalie's always like throwing something at me like, hey, can you, and so anytime she's like, hey, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, I, I, you know, like. Most I, of them fail, like, but I, I've learned that and I'm okay with it. Like, yeah. I, you know, I figure if I throw out 100 things and 23 stick, like that's not bad. Yeah. I like to write my friends and say, let's do something, or let's do something big. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll just send a line or a text, and who knows what it is. One of the things I, I, I think that I've started to think about as a sort of maybe an aesthetic as well as a philosophical uh, disposition that Natalie is, she calls it a wonder. Hmm. Let's do a wonder. You know, she's, she's like, I have a wonder. And I really like that aspect. I've really been thinking about, like, what if we just wonder, right, as a way of it. It, it reminds me of, it's almost science fiction. Right, or, or fantasy in some ways, right? Let's, let's imagine something. Uh, so. Yeah. Some of my friends get worried, though, when I say, you know, I wonder. And they're like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> What's she going to say? Or I'm like, what if? <laughs> but what's failed? Like, you mean, like, what's your biggest fail? 
Well, I mean, there. I still want to do like a hundred million things. You uh -huh. know, like I just. It, it's like, what's possible? What if we do this? What if we make a book? What if we do this? What if we, you know? And and it's just always trying to find a way. I think to to kind of utilize. I mean, I guess maybe because of, of athletics, like the team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, where yeah. it's like. I have to be 100% me, individual, selfish, at my best, and, you know, how boring to be out there shooting baskets with myself all day, but the team is, I think, it's how we live, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and I really feel like I live better because of, of my poetry, I don't know how I would live in my poetry world without you guys, mm -hmm. you know, without, with, and, and even without that, like, hey, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I need that. I need to be pushed against. I need, you know, I've, I've learned so much more about conversation, I think, with, with Roger and with, you know, Eliza, Isha, you know, Jericho. Like, with, just with these people that are like, you know what, I don't know if I agree with you, you know, and here I am, yeah. and this, you know, no buts, no or, just, and this, and this, where everything is able to be there. And I know I can be flawed there. Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I don't know. It's how we make poetry. Like, like you know, I think you were saying this earlier in different ways, but that's how we create. We create in that. Like, you know, one time you said to me, like, the confusion, the chaos. Like, we have to have that. Mm -hmm. That's where that, that fucked upness, that's the place where, where we build things, you know? And it's, in most of our cases, it's where we were built. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, like that pressure that yeah. it made us, yeah. you know, the things we are. Yeah. See, it's hard for me to imagine tonight's um, event failing in any way because I feel like you've already made this magical uh, but very real thing, which is by asking all these people to write something new. We've already been talking to each other mm -hmm. while we were writing and thinking. Like, you know, when I was writing, I, I, I like had you close by. Um, and, I, and when I saw who else was going to be there, I was thinking about being in the space with them and how, you know, so it, what could happen that it could fail? It's true that somebody could say something and I, and I worried about it being me. Um, you know, that either sounded stupid or offensive or um, uh, too long. Uh, but at the same time, if we're together, I guess, and, and people are willing to say, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I didn't, that, that wasn't my favorite thing you've ever said. And I'm still willing to talk to you. Uh, I guess I feel like the only thing I can imagine failing is the thing we don't do or the thing we don't do together or not showing up or, um, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's naive. Um, no. We're serving mezcal, though, so I, I can think of several <laughs> failures that, that I might get myself into after that. <laughs> yeah, mezcal yeah. was, you know... Liquor will turn any event, yeah. <laughs> any, any project. It's funny, I was just reading that Derek Walcott interview. Oh, yeah. That recent, I'm only halfway through it. And he was talking about how he tried to he tried to be like Hart Crane and drink six beers and then go write a masterpiece. And he was like, you can't do it. <laughs> so, true. Huh. But I think there's something to... I think why this event obviously won't fail to me is because... It's been like you know it's 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 funny it reminds me of a poem in the sense that there's a there's a form but there's so much flexibility inside of it mm -hmm. 
right? What everybody's done with the sort of charge, right? Right. We might like I think about that uh, that Wordsworth idea, right? That Wordsworthian notion of poesy, right? Mm. Uh, which is this recollection and tranquility, right? But you you have these charged emotions that you right. Sort of Natalie sets a charge, and then we sort of like it's loose enough that we can recollect as we would like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this sort of I, I, I don't see this. I think this is just gonna be a lot of fun. To me, this is like, and also you're limiting. Like, I, I think the best thing you could do is limit poets to three minutes. Mm, I, I, did you, do you find that difficult or? I find it incredibly liberating because I like, I, I think because I'm, I always think there's if, if we segregate poets into two communities, which there are many communities, but there's <laughs> there's poem poets and there's book poets. Yeah. <laughs> right. Some certain poets like think about themselves as like I write books yeah. right some of us are just like I like poems right <laughs> like I like one poem at a time right like I, like if I write a good poem I can like eat on that for like weeks yeah Jericho was just talking about that right and liking so, poems and not book books as much or projects I, I gotta say I'm you're, you're a project. I'm a long-winded book type of person that I'm I'm working on it no that's fine but, well I think that's like the wit to me it's the like Whitman Whitman, like, if, if we were splitting camps, and I wouldn't say that I don't know much about, but it seems like a Whitman Dickinson sort of mm-hmm. impulse, or, or like a Stevenson, uh, or Steven, sorry, a Stevens impulse, right, mm-hmm. which is that really, versus, um, versus a, 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 a sort of different impulse, right? I think there's multiple impulse. I think there's an American, like, if we, I think there's American impulses, and I think that, like, the long project is an American impulse in a certain fashion. I mean, we have the epic. Don't yeah. get me wrong. There's a lot of tradition. There's, a, but I think that like this project bookish thing. Yeah. Feels very American to me. All that to say, I think it's great when you limit poets. Yeah. <laughs> Just because like three minutes, you gotta bring fire. Everybody's stressed. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta bring hot. I have a bell too. No, I can't. I'm gonna ring it. It's like. <laughs> when you hear the bells ringing, you'll know it's you've gone over. I'm setting my timer on my phone. <laughs> and as it goes off, you just walk off. Well, I because I did, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't actually do it. I did fail. So I just now I'm going back on what I said before. I totally failed. I couldn't do it. I couldn't write a poem, a three minute poem, and so. What if you um, wrote three poems? Yeah. Well, I ended up writing a letter. And the letter ended up being very much, 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 much longer. And I, I decided that's okay, and I'm gonna set my time. It's really not okay to go over the time. That's clear. And then I think stop. Go over, go over. No, I'm not gonna be that person. You can't take up someone else's time. Well, someone has to be that person. Somebody, but it's not you know, somebody will be that person. You know, it's not gonna be me. You know what I love is, um, I heard, uh, I grew up with this idea of time, which is you don't be on time, you be in time, mm. mm-hmm. right? And so I think that, like, the spirit of the night, yeah. like, I have a feeling, I think, it's, I think the spirit of the night will allow, like, I think there's a certain type of flexibility that when people get together, and, they, and like, this is kind of like, I know it's, you know, I grew up real Christian, so a lot of my metaphors, the way I come think about things is like, like, this is like fellowshipping, mm. right? And I think about, like, uh, the Quakers, mm-hmm. right, and that being moved and let spirit move you, right. I think spirit is gonna move, mm-hmm. you know, because of what of what's being gathered, and okay. the type of spirits that are gathered. I love that, but you've been at the reading where there's the person, <laughs> and they said you have fifteen minutes each, and then the person 
24. 24 and still going. <laughs> and, it, and then and they say at, at 23, when they're supposed to go 15, at 23 they say, how am I doing on time? Do I have more time for a couple more? And you're like, no, Clay, <laughs> stop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the person you, you, the person you came to see is reading after that person. So and they is, read less. And they read less. <laughs> exactly. Because they're that kind of person. And you're like, wait, this is not really how this was supposed to go down. So I, anyway, I'm not going to be that person. But Natalie, do you feel like you're a, a poem poet or a book poem poet? Or do, are those two, is that distinction not super meaningful to you in your own work? You know, in my, I, yeah, I, I have trouble in my own work thinking beyond the poem. Like, I feel like I put so much into it, you know, it's like you make every play count, you mm-hmm. make every, you know, and so I, I hope that I can always be lost there, and like, just kind of give everything, you know, there's, there's a, um, Pedro Salinas line, and he's, he's talking about his lover, but, um, it's from the long poem, My, My Voice Because of You, mm-hmm. um, La Voz a Ti de Vida, but he's, it's almost as if he's talking about writing too, and he's talking about like um, behind, beyond is where he's trying to find her, like behind, beyond. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's where I'm trying to go with my poem, like behind, like beyond me. And he says to her, like it's even beyond. You are, are even something beyond what I feel of you. So whatever it is in me, I want to lose it. And so it's more than me. And then at the end, he says, at the end of this one passage, he's, he's, he's saying, like, you know, as if I were dying. And so to imagine, like, if I can just write this poem as if I were dying, like, that's what, you know, from, from every line to every poem, to say, like, I've, I've given it all here. I've turned over everything. I've, I've hurt myself as much as I can hurt myself on it um, or risked something even as dangerous as ecstasy or joy on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think I tend to be more of a a, a poet, but I, I also, am, you know, I, I don't know, I, I tend to get, like, shiny things distract me, or, you know, it's like, what if? It's mm-hmm. that, I, I'm always like, oh, well, what if that? What if that? And, you know, so... I guess, to to go back to what you were saying, Roger, like, I love Whitman. I'm happy to be in Whitman's tribe. That's fine. Although, I don't think that my long-windedness and my expansion is really like Whitman in that way because I don't find myself that interesting as Whitman finds himself. Um, yeah, I don't like him. <laughs> the, native, but, the, the, the native in me is like... Well, also, yeah. he's got yeah. the manifest destiny poetics, which yeah. is super problematic. Um, and... I, I guess for myself, what I hope or what I think that that, that like longness comes out of is more about, uh, for myself, inclusion mm. and saying these are the interruptions in my life, like these are the domestic moments or the things that are not supposed to be in poems that I'm not going to mm. take out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I think that... Uh, it's not that I find short poems or, or, no. or contained poems to be exclusive, no. but that in my own work, I don't know how to write a, 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 like a self-contained shorter poem without doing that thing that feels like I'm revising out 
the parts of myself or the parts of other people or the parts of things that are not po- traditionally poetic that I resist wanting to take out, you know? I like and I don't that. think it's that's like the what other women side does. of the scene though. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So like for me whereas I'm looking mm. I want to I want to take the part where I can step outside of myself, you know, whereas in in so it's almost like you take the thing and you flip it inside out and so our scenes are just out or right, smooth. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. like that. I like that I like the the disruption mm-hmm. of that even though it's it's not treating them as disruption. It's you know, mm-hmm. so then the disruption becomes the normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I feel like we could keep flip flopping that over and over and over on on each other again and again, so that it it's we challenge it, but then we by challenging it, you're also supporting it, and by supporting it, of course you're challenging it. Like mm. it just keeps going back. It's it's so funny because I have to revise even what I'm saying because I'm working on like long poems now. Mm. Nothing that I'm writing now is shorter. Like I've just recently written. Oh, and it's been the first time in three years that I've written something that's been less than a page. Everything has been minimal. Seven pages. Wow. Um, and I think that was... That's af- incredible, too. I think it's after... Actually, after publishing my first book, and there was this moment where I realized I was... I think there's this thing where I think, like, as a, as a black man, I've been scared to occupy space in certain ways. And I've been scared to, like, I've seen it. Like, I'll never forget there was this time. I always note these things, like, when I self-censor or when I sort of capitulate to ideas of blackness that are harmful, right? And so one time I'm standing by a door in Chicago. I'm waiting for a friend of mine who lives in this nice building. And I see these white people approach. And I immediately move from the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, why the fuck did you do that? Mm-hmm. And so now, anytime I'm by a door, like, and I know I did it. It started when I was 15 years old, walking through the mall, right, in, in New Jersey, and being followed by security guards, and having white women clutch their purses and clutch their babies when I'm waiting for my mother to pick me up, and never wanting to feel that again, right? But now I'm 30, and it's like, I don't have to feel anything, I, right? I can choose. So there's this way in which, after my first book, I was like, I think I need to occupy space in a way, and not for the sake of occupying space, but, but as a way of being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, it is completely uncomfortable for me to, to write long in a certain fashion. Um, partly because it's like you're taught to be quiet or keep your head mm-hmm. down, do your work, you know. Don't ask questions. Don't, don't get in the way because you get in the way, you know, somebody will move you out of the way, mm-hmm. right? Normally the police. And so it's like, nah, let's get in the way. Right, I have to teach my, and for me, it's like, so now, it's funny, I think I'm doing the same thing where, and it's very uncomfortable to like, to think, you know, to, to think about the, the physical room manifesting in the poem in a certain way for me now, right? Like lamps, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And having, uh, you know, my, my daughter has this, she had this rattle that was a bee. And it obsessed me for a long time, right? I said, my daughter's bee does, does not buzz but rattles in this poem, right? And so it was just, and it was like, it was this very strange thing for me because nobody would have the context of that, but I was trying to make it make sense. Um, but, um, but it also is like being international in a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being diasporic, uh, thinking through people like Ame Cezanne and Negritude and Fadi Judah and Darwish and, and so Ma Sharif, and like thinking about how am I sort of 
taking up space, right? And not allowing, like, like thinking about, like, how do I talk to all these different folk, right? Because I, th I see them as all my folk. And I feel like I'm gonna have to take space in order to do that, right? And the tension of that space, I think, is important. You know, like, like not, like, we talked about this before, like, not needing, like, like when you said, I don't wanna be afraid to fuck up in front of white people. Yeah. You know, like, like to be able to not just occupy it, but live in it, and all mm -hmm. its ugliness, mm -hmm. and all the ugly things we do as we live, as well as all those yeah. pretty things we do. Yeah. But, you know, or whether it's not censoring out the daily grind of yeah. life. But, but it, it's crazy to me, like, that's what feels like it's the tension, like the tension that we live in, yeah. you know, and I, it, it's so nice. I feel like where I'm trying to be is that I'm not trying to step outside of it or ease it, yeah. but I'm saying it's okay to be here in the tension of it, yeah. to stay yeah. in it, like you said, to feel discomfort you know, to feel maybe like, maybe we don't know exactly what to say to Fadi, right. but to be able to listen mm -hmm. as part of a conversation, yeah. you know, and, and to me that feels like tension again, you know, it's just like, it's and, and now I feel like I'm finding ways to have tension, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes tension is good, like what is, like I, I feel like I've learned this from conversations with you and from um, some of the work you've been doing, but just this idea like of pleasure Mm -hmm. You know, like like pleasure is tension. Yeah. Like pleasure is not some pretty no. smooth thing. It's no. it's tension, and and I've been able to drag that and just conversations we've had and and some of the work you know that's happening on your page, but to drag it into my poems and say like, yes, I want a love poem with all of these tensions, mm -hmm. which is sometimes pleasure, which is sometimes violent, yeah. which is sometimes you know, and and so it's it's interesting to me to to hear you talk you know, in this way about that discomfort, because I feel like it's, it's such an important part of, of where I'm headed, Yeah. you know, like toward you, toward you, toward all of these other works. It's, it's so interesting. Like no one, I think no one can prepare you for like joy, like to bring it back to like our political, like joy in a, like how do you have joy in a, in the most disruptive sort of yeah. moment, right? Like I think like, um, there's a scholar named Sadia Hartman who writes about how slave masters would even, in, in a book called Scenes of Subjection, how slave masters would even co-opt black people's pleasure, right? So they would make them dance and play, play, and play all night, play the violin, dance all night, and you had to keep up, and you had to, sh and you had to mm -hmm. seem to be in-pleasured, mm -hmm. right? To be enjoying the whole thing because your joy was the master's joy. And I think, whoa. But is there a moment in that being commissioned, being driven to a type of pleasure that one has a moment that there is pleasure for yourself, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm always thinking about like that long tradition, like that's a long tradition of pleasure that I come out of. Yeah, like how do you steal it? How do you take it back? How do you even like protect it in certain ways, you know? Like, yeah. And that public and private, I think is something that I'm learning in a very different way. Like. Hmm. what is public and what is private and, and what what do I want to hold as private and what am I like, you know what, fuck this. This needs to be public. Yeah. This hurt needs to be public. Yeah. Yeah. This pleasure even needs to yeah. be public in a way that, that, that I feel like gives me some autonomy or gives my speakers and my poems a real power, you know, yeah. to say I'm not hiding this anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not hiding this experience that this speaker is having. Like, I want you to see it. I want you to be uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. I want you to push back against it. 
-hmm. You know, this re reminds me, and I, I don't know if I can uh, be articulate about it, but uh, I taught your uh, craft talk um, poetry in the age of Ferguson to two classes, and so I've watched it a lot of times. And um, I've been thinking about that in terms of this discussion just now because how do we occupy an imaginative empathy and a space in which we are in our writing reclaiming pleasure, also um, not uh, conforming um, to like the reader's expectations or to some force that is, is making us uh, feel a certain way or act a certain way or be a certain way or not be a certain way, but without also falling into that trap of uh, performing something in the poems that then gets substituted for a kind of action or a kind mm -hmm. of, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm searching for the right mm -hmm. words and I, I feel like you guys know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about, but you know, that thing, I mean, your example was not about poetry, but of, you know, putting the, the, uh, videos of police brutality on Facebook and then feeling like you did something and in fact it's 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 turns into a spectacle that is actually removing you from responsibility mm -hmm. um, so I'm really interested in that too like you know if we want to get as close as we can in our poems uh, to being who we are and also having a disruptive, disobedient, mm -hmm. but connected relationship to the language and to the reader and to the world and to our own experience. But how do we do that without kind of making something beautiful that then in fact makes us sep more separate or disconnected? I feel like you're answering the question. You you're, you're actually helping me too. You're answering. Okay. I think you're answering the question because it, it's not. It's in the not separating. Mm. Yeah. Right. So it's like I'm at a party, and I'm dancing, and if I think of Emmett Till and lynching and police brutality, that's still happening at the party, and I could still be dancing while I'm thinking about this. Right. So there's a simultaneity that I think we think we have to like. Like I think we think of things. We're, I think we're too invested in purity sometimes mm. in the pure empathetic moment because that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Just as like the pure tragic moment doesn't exist. No, or we'd, we'd quit. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like imagine tragedy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all had tragedy enough to stop us, mm -hmm. yet we don't yeah. stop. Exactly. You know, like because you breathe just as easily as you're dying. You know, it's happening. I've been reading this book, uh, This is an Uprising, by Mark and Paul Engler. Mm -hmm. And they're talking, yeah, and they're discussing how the student movement helped to overthrow Slobodan Milosevic. And how it was, they called it part political, part social club. And that often what they would do is they would create these spectacles that were theatrical and, but, and politically informative, and then at the same time completely fun rock bands are playing, right? There's not a divorce, there's not a divorcing of the, the politics and the pleasure. Hmm. And you turn and, and you, you know, and so I think there's a way in which what I'm calling for in that particular 
uh, piece that you're talking about is I'm actually calling for uh, that the ending of that room like this and this might be controversial go for it the idea that you're a poet of witness. I expect nothing less. Right? <laughs> the idea that you're a poet of witness mm -hmm. in that moment, right? That, like, I'm trying to really trouble the term witness and what it is to witness something. It needs to be troubled in America. I yeah, think. I think I think we have. I think we're. I think we're about to be turned into witnesses mm. for the first time in a really long time. Um, and I don't think you. I don't think witnessing. Witnessing is, like, if we think about the legal notion of what a, who a witness is, right? If you witness a crime, it wasn't you weren't set out there. You, you happen, it, you know, when I think about, like, the inter-American court and when people report on genocides, right, throughout Latin America, to, like, and they're witnesses, that's a very different type of witness. Mm. And I guess I'm just really interested in troubling how poets even myself, right, uh, develop, or how do I say, create their, their ties to the material that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is not taking, like, black history and life and struggle for granted because I'm black, right? So therefore, I, I you know, like, I'm still writing a poem. I'm still making a beautiful object. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of privilege in that. And so I'm trying to trouble that, right, by keeping myself, right? That's why I love that Seamus Heaney moment where he says, I would have I done the same thing too, right? I'm the artful voyeur, mm -hmm. right? So I actually think that we're like voyeurs and voyeuristic more than we are witnesses. Because I guess there's a certain kind of uh, complacency or like I, I'm thinking of journalists or reporters who witness in a way, and their job is really important, and they bring yeah. information, but there's also that incredibly painful and and maybe irresolvable problem of those photographs you see that you just say, you want to say, like, throw your fucking camera down and go push the person to the ground or, or pull them out of the water or help them. Like, I don't want your witness. I wanted to know that in that moment you were a human being with another human being. So there's also a way in which being a witness in some ways is we need more than anything and more than ever, but in another way, not if it, if it means that you're not a human being in the moment of of reaching out your hand and can you do both also who gets to be a witness and what do you have permission to witness that's what's really interesting to me about about poetry right now um at least what is capturing me right now in my own work and other work that i'm reading there's a lot of witness poetry happening right now and it's the witness that allows people to say, "I'm I'm disgusted with America," or "I'm you know I'm I'm outraged at this," "I'm grief-stricken over this," and I don't trust it. And but at the same time, I understand a poem is an artifact. Mm -hmm. It's but I, I'm I'm really interested in, which is why social media. I press on social media so much, the same way that I I feel like. I'm learning to press on an audience with a poem, is that that line between private and, and public, that line between uh, like 
language and gest the gesture mm -hmm. it carries or the mm -hmm. language and the body it carries. Mm -hmm. You know, because I, in some respect, I, I really criticize that line that, like, you know, which is why hateful language to me needs to be taken more serious because it's not that far from the gesture mm -hmm. because language carries the body. It's made of the body. So if you can say a thing, I have complete faith that you can do that thing. So it's problematic in that way. On the other side, it's also, I think, why I believe in it, why I'm able to wake up and be a poet is that m my hope is that as much as I know that that I am an object when I'm up there or that I'm the native, the one native they've seen in their life or I'm this or I'm that to them, I also, I also hope that something I'm reading or something I'm saying, I mean, I, I, I more than hope, I believe in it, otherwise I couldn't do it, is also bringing them closer to a gesture. You know, in, in the same way that I don't, I don't trust that just because you like something on Facebook means you, you know, however, what if, like, what if you say it enough, I mean, language is prophetic, like, you say it enough, and it can come true, like, it can happen, you know, so I'm always stuck in that middle space where I completely am, I'm critical of it, I doubt it, and at the same time, I have to believe in it, you know, in, in that middle ground of it, um, but it, it affects the way I think of, of witness, and and the way I think of like the witness or the voyeur or the the reporter, you know, um, because w I always wonder like where is the body in each of those things? Yeah, I think that's a really important part. Like the body, like I think that's what gets divorced, right, from it. Um, the other thing that I'm really interested in too is like, why is it that there's a way in which we also really enjoy seeing the maimed, the traumatized body? Sometimes it's really interesting to actually turn the camera in the opposite direction and look at how, what is the face of the traumatizer, mm -hmm. right? There's, a, there's this um, visual artist I really love, Carrie James Marshall. Oh, I just went to the show. Yeah, at the Met, well, he, he had it at the MCA for, in Chicago, and he has this really great, really smart change of direction. Mm -hmm. There's the lynching photograph, and what he does is he puts brooches and obscures everything else around the actual lynch body, and all you get are, th are three women's faces, and it's like, it's, and you wouldn't focus, I've seen that picture before, you would never focus on these, but when he puts these like brooches around their faces, these framing of their, it's like, oh my God, these women look utterly terrified. Like this is a terrifying thing, and they looked almost um, mad. Like the way, like my mom always used to say, people get angry, animals get mad. You can see their animal. Mm. You can see their animal in a certain way. And I was like, wow. And just that change. So I'm really interested in also like, huh, what if we just, rather than shooting this way at what's, like, you know, we, we do need that picture. But what if we shot behind us? Mm -hmm. Right? What is the photograph? What is the, this perspective of looking this way? Mm -hmm. And we don't ever, right? We always, we're always in the foreground. We never look at the background. We never look at what composes that. Like, how has that body been made to be traumatized? That's more interesting. I love those poems. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular that I can't remember the name of it, um, in Terfia Fazula's book, where she's looking at herself recording these women who are speaking of their experience. And she's, she's looking at her own 
kind of hunger for these stories and how uncomfortable that is, but also how important it is, there's not someone else there who's asking them um, to, to say, and her own body and her own trespass in a way um, in, the, in that moment, but also then what gets exposed is our position you know, of watching her, watching them. And, um, yeah, turning it around. I, I thought you were going to say something else about those, um, those brooches, which was, um, when I talked to Shane McRae for the podcast, he was talking about coming upon this description of lynchings that, of not being aware of, white people taking memorabilia from the lynchings mm -hmm. and the uh, intense horror of this. And so we had a conversation about that, like, you know, what it means to not only face this history, but to face the, the, the parts that we don't talk about so much, mm -hmm. you know, we, you know, we, we, and so the brooches, I saw as their look of horror, but within like a um, the the thing you would wear around your neck of of, of like a favorite ancestor and something that you would keep clothes like lockets. And I was horrified. I mean, in a, in a, in a good way, um, not in a way that you would like it on Facebook, but in a way that's like really stayed with me. I think what was also fascinating is. They're reacting to being photographed. Oh, to, that's the way I read it, right? Yeah. So they're they're reacting to being in some ways like framed, caught. being caught in this thing, right? Like you're like we are we are supposed to be outside of the gaze, the person that is gazed at, the thing that is gazed at is up in that tree. That's what that's what gazing gets you, right? The ability to like the spectator, right? It, right? If we go back to the the Greek, that means he who decides. That's he who decides what is beautiful. Hmm. Right, so that's the spectator controls the gaze, and so what happens when you're thrown into being gazed at? You're thrown into the position that you could be one day up in that tree, and I think that that's the camera is does that to people, right? It's like all of a sudden you you reveal things that you don't realize you're revealing or you don't want to reveal, which was another sort of what I'm really interested in is like what are we revealing when we're being horrible, right? What do we actually look like? What is what is the act of making horror? look like and I think that those women's faces were but I the, the, my only hesitation about that is I'm not sure that they were embarrassed about being there and I, I'm not saying that that's what you're saying exactly I'm, I'm I'm trying to put this thought together like the reason I was even there is I went to see the Diane Arbus show on the very last day. And I'm interested in Diane Arbus in terms of Sylvia Plath and in terms of the history of confession and in terms of what it means to be a woman who's on the street looking at other people and that gaze and the way in which she, you know, photographed what were then called freaks and marginalized 
um, people. And then, so in the one way, she was like inclusive, but in another way, she's really caricaturizing them in ways that are really horrible. Anyway, I've got all these feelings about Diane Arbus. And I went for her, and I got there, and I looked at these early photographs of her, and I was like, this is doing nothing for me. I'm not interested. Every photograph is the same. It, the gaze is the same. The look on the subject is the same. It feels really invasive and ugh. Right. I was super frustrated. And I was like, I don't even want to be here. And then I was like, wait, who's this guy? And I went and I, 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 I just found, you know, each painting to be more amazing than the one before. And I thought, these are paintings that make me want to write. Um, these are in, in their making. And for me as a white person, looking at those paintings, I'm seeing something else. Um, and I have a different access, um, maybe a lesser access. But the, the way in which the, the complexity of the relationship between each piece of the painting and to audience and to expected audience and to the history of art and to the... And to, experience and the, the way there was text and the music. Have you have you seen this guy's work at all? I have, but Roger, when Roger suggested oh, I take man. a look, so I've only seen it online. I haven't seen it. In the musical notes in the poem and the way that, like, if I can't read music like that, but if you, if you look at it, I was like, how do we, how can I write a poem that the, the reader hears something? Like, he, like, without me telling them what to hear. Like, how can I put something, or how can I put something in the poem that, that has this kind of, like, physical effect on a reader on all these different levels? Like, I don't know. I was like, I don't know how to do that, but I want to hmm. think about it and learn and, and, and see that. And it's not that that doesn't happen in poetry, but I was just, like, you know, eyes wide, like, what? Wow, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> I just Maybe. went to see it last week, and I haven't had anyone to talk to yeah, about I it. This it. Is <laughs> I think he's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned him a few months ago, yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I, I went and saw it because I had been looking at, because he's in Chicago, mm. and uh, the South Side is such a vibrant visual art scene. And like, like Krista Franklin, uh, just so many vibrant, uh, and it just like communities, they're just they're doing so much, and it's like folks of color doing a lot, and the and the best way of doing a lot. And so um, I had heard about him, and I had seen some of his work, and uh, and I kind of I was in I was in Spain uh, this summer, the first time I've ever really been to Europe on like my own dime, the, the only, only my second time ever in Europe, and I got to see Wilfredo Lamb, who is this um, Cuban painter. Mm who was running with Picasso, um, he's surrealist. Um, and Ame Césaire, the poet, wrote this review of him that sent me to thinking about Kerry James Marshall, and that's just how, is he wrote this review in an art magazine, I think it was Calle de Art, and he said, Wilfredo Lamb addresses himself only to freedom. And that was like the most profound thing I could have read. And it's really true. Like when you look at his work, you're like, oh, he's not talking to anybody. He's a he's talking to the freedom in you. 
And when I think of Kerry James Marshall, I think of somebody who's through his idea of mastery is addressing freedom. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm going to make these people like this is black. Anything, like if they're people, they will be black and it will not be a black that is mixed with anything. It'll be black. And it's, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Have you ever met him? No, no, I haven't. I haven't. His studio's like on, like he's like real accessible out here. But I think I would probably shake meeting him. But he's amazing. Mm. Have you ever written poems like directly about the the work or ephrastic? Uh, I'm going to read an ephrastic poem. Tonight, oh, cool! But I don't want to give it away. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, but um, or it's like I'm really interested in it, like. Yeah, I mean, like, I have a bunch of stuff in my first book that deals with Basquiat, mm -hmm. either implicitly or explicitly. Um, I'm always thinking. I think there's a way in which I, I, I think I would have been, if it wasn't for my first grade art teacher, I probably would have been a visual artist. Mm -hmm. She told me. Well, my, you still can be. I still can be. I should. But we were trying to make these little bunnies mm. <laughs> out of, like, clay. Yeah. And my bunny just never looked right. And. She just like made me feel horrible, and I like oh. just crying, you know, sensitive little boy, crying. Then it, she was, then she was like, "What? You need to stop crying." And then I got in trouble because I was crying. My mom had to come to school because it was just a bad. It just went from bad to worse. So I just thought I'll never be a visual artist. And so I just kind of was like, "Well, let me uh, let me try these poems." <laughs> what are you working on, Natalie? Do you have any long, long seven-page poems? I'm just writing everything. You know, I'm writing all over the place. I finished a little novella, and I'm drawing a lot. I've been doing a lot of uh, drawings with text, um, essays. I, you know, I was at Standing Rock, and a lot of people have asked me to write about it, and it's just too big. Like, it's so much bigger than Standing Rock. Like, it's, it's like my whole life. It's the lives of the people, you know, before me and so it's huge it's really big it's it's shifted a lot of of how i'm writing um but yeah and it, it feels exciting and I, also i'm in transition i'm moving so i i you know as soon as i tell myself don't worry like you don't have to write anything for the next month it's like everything comes flooding into my head so i thought i would need like the month off just to kind of juggle everything and it's it's been great it feels lucky um but yeah, and I just, you know, I'll kind of wait and see. I have a second book to float around and see what happens. Awesome. Can we can we talk more about Standing Rock? Yeah. 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 When when were you there? Um, I was there, what is today? I'll have to see how many trips I've had since then. Mm. Um, I think, I, so I was there right before the, the holiday. Mm -hmm. So right before... Good old Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, Carmen Jimenez Smith text uh, emailed me Happy fucked up Colonial Day. Yeah, yeah. I think Jane Fonda wanted to feed everybody on Thanksgiving there. It's like, where, what are they supposed to eat the rest? Of, they can only eat the holiday you like. That's the only time you're willing to help somebody eat, and everyone else. Um, but then there's Jane Fonda. So it's, but but yeah, I was there and uh, I went with Jennifer Forrester. We. Uh, she's a native poet, um, Muskogee Creek poet, uh, which is Jean Joy Harjo or from the same tribe. Um, Joy, it, we started a little collective. Just it started like like most things start. Like I just emailed a few people and it's like, hey, what can we do? Like what if we do something? And 
Louise Erdrich, Hyde Erdrich. Um, the Erdrich family is pretty incredible. Like all of the, all of the people in their family. Uh, Joy Harjo, Deborah Miranda, Laylee Long Soldier. We started collecting native books and helped start a library there mm -hmm. at Standing Rock. So we went and worked with the kids. Uh, I made zines, like a little zine workshop, and uh, we did some poetry with them. And then we've been fundraising just with within the poetry community, like, you know, hey, this is what we're trying to do. So um, we are helping build a longhouse, mm. and we're building a yurt. Um, just some writer friends I've met. We're all getting together. We're going back out there. We'll build the platform so because the yurts have to be made, mm. so they're making them custom. But that'll be their library and classroom. Are they made there or made and brought um, there? Well, they make the materials. They they ship them, and then we pick up the materials and go out there and build them. Uh -huh. But it's just been difficult to get things in and out. Um, nobody will let you rent a trailer, you know, so you have, like, we, when we went, we flew into Minneapolis. We rented an RV and drove in. Mm. Um, we stopped with an elder who lived in, right outside of Fargo, and she drove, like, let us in. And this time we're we're just trying to figure out how far out we'll need to go to get the trailer and to even to get the lumber mm. it's a really disgusting mm -hmm. uh look at at america but it's not one that's unfamiliar to me like i you know my tribe has a casino now i live in a very small area so they're important because they can now fund what some of the town cannot fund back on my home reservation mm -hmm. but it's it was always the same growing up you know so it's it's interesting that like none of this is new to, to most Native Americans this mm -hmm. is this is typical it's just now we have the the gift of this lens to say hey you know this is what's happening do you think that the gift of the lens is gonna be lastingly helpful um i mean i feel like the this is what i'm hearing a lot and makes sense to me is that none of this is new um same thing that i'm hearing from people of color about the election like this, this is like white people who are shocked that there are racist people in this country is not new yeah it's um, even part of my introduction <laughs> i say like you know welcome <laughs> welcome to this fight <laughs> than yeah. most of us have been grinding at. Right. So, so how to how to take what seems new to people who haven't been forced to fight and haven't been called to fight, um, although they should have been. How can the what seems new to them actually be lastingly and meaningfully transformative, so that we cannot be in the cycle. Um, endlessly. Is that possible? Is that happening? Well, I mean, I feel like that's a question we've been asking just forever. People before me asked it. I, I do, I do believe in, in what's happening. Um, and I, I believe in it, I think, because I feel like Native people are saying, we're fighting. You come with us or not, you know, we're fighting. And we are, we are doing this knowing we're fighting for you, too. We're not just fighting for us, but we've been doing this for a long time. We have something to... Like, the elders, the way, the way Native elders right now are speaking to the world, I think is incredible. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's a way that my elders have talked to me always, but the way they're opening it up, like what what to me is most incredible about what's happening happening at Standing Rock is that those elders are conducting ceremonies. Some are still very private, of course, but they're conducting ceremonies in front of these hundreds and thousands of white people, some who who have no respect still. Yet what they're saying is this idea, like the Lakota elders are incredible, like this idea of compassion, this idea of respect, of forgiveness. And these are words that Americans take very much for granted, and, and they're getting them in translation. But those words are like we say, you don't play with those words. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think most of our native languages have those words that you this is not a toy word. Like you don't put it in your mouth unless you know that you can deliver it the way it needs to be delivered. And I think that's the difference. And I know my tribes, I'm from two different tribes. I know my my friends who are native and indigenous from these different tribes. Like we all have the same prophecy. And it's and my, it seems weird in America to say the word prophecy, you know, because I think because of like the matrix or something. But there's this idea that's saying we're like all the nations are coming together and we don't just mean native nations. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if we've understood that, that the only way mm-hmm. to build to build an army, a, a system of warriors and family that can fight this, this thing that's been happening to us since America became itself, the only way to fight America is all of us are going to have to do it. And so I think as much as I... I feel sad some days and I feel frustrated and angry some days. I also feel stronger than I've ever felt. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's because of that. I think it's because of that to say that there are things I know and have been taught that are going to matter. Um, and just, you know, and, and that, I think that's something that we tend to, sh- to shy away from. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's probably different for you now with Naima, like, and it's, you know, with your children, but I don't have kids, so, but it must, you know, like, I don't know, that moment when you're like, you know what, I have something to offer. Like, I have something that's going to make a difference, and that feels, that feels new to me. Even though I've been, you know, writing poems and playing basketball and running all over the place talking as if I know something, all of a sudden it seems like, you know, some of the values that I've been taught, they matter in this world, and the world needs them. And that, that feels new, and that feels hopeful to me. And that's something that was a gift from my elders and from you know different elders from different tribes. So that, as much as we know that why we need these things are because we're in such a fucked up place, it's also, I don't know, there's just something that I feel like we have these tools. We have these parts of ourself. Like, we're here. Like, you're not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to, you know, like we are not, I grew up on a reservation. Mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to be alive. Like those were not meant to foster art, mm-hmm. but somehow my parents and their parents, they found joy. Mm-hmm. They found pleasure. They kept getting up in the morning. And it's, it seems like a small thing for me to be able to do is to get up and say, you have things to do, now do them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's easy for me all the time. Mm-hmm. It just means that I feel like maybe I'm just that much closer to maybe to like the love that I need to do those things. You know, like I I think I never realized how much love you need to write a poem, Mm. how much love you need to 
to have a conversation, you know, or even the small things like to take care of yourself, mm -hmm. to just say, I need this. Like, yeah. It's funny because when you were talking, I was thinking about tonight's event as a type of, of tribes coming together, of bringing nations, of bringing people, particularly because there's a lot of folks of color yeah. that you're bringing together, right? And that's one thing that I've, I have to say I've always admired about you is the way you can bring people together. You bring, and it's constantly like a driving force in the way that you, in your thinking and you're, you're like, we have to come together, we have to come together. Um, and that's why anything Natalie says, like, hey, can you do this? I'm, I get on a plane and do it. But it's not just that. I mean, I, I'm, it's the people I'm at. Like, it's you. You're one of, you know what I mean? Like, I could ask anybody, but it's, it's because I've been lucky enough. Like I say, that chosen family to me is, poetry wouldn't be worth anything to me without it. And I think I, I've, I've realized that in a new way this year. It's like I can go before any audience and I can flip a switch and I can tell some jokes about white people and I can make them laugh and I can make them sad, but... And it w there was a time last year when I had to refigure it. I'm like, it doesn't mean I I'm not feeling it the same way. And the way I found it again was, you know, with my friends and my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you able to? I guess I was gonna say, are you? Are you? How are you getting the love that you need? And also, when it's running low. How do you ask for more or how do you find more? I mean, this events like this and knowing that Roger will come, you know, that other people will come um, is great. Um, but is what happens when you're, the love tank is, is running down? Yeah, I mean, it often is, right? Like, I feel like it's, it often needs like a jump start or a kick start. And for me, it's again, been like friends and family. Like I, you know, even this idea, like you're saying, like, don't get in any, anybody's way, don't ask. Oddly enough, poetry has been the way that I've learned mm -hmm. to, like, say, this is what I want, this is what I need. I want, like, simple things, like, this is what I ask to get paid. Mm -hmm. You're, we're not supposed to do that. It's, we're supposed to take what we're given and, and like it. Mm -hmm. But even those small things, like, so being out in this world that in some ways shares my, the values my parents taught me, but also doesn't have the values that my parents and community have taught me. It's been that where I've had to say like I love this enough that I'm going to I'm going to find a way to exist in it and to and sometimes I don't. Like New York ground me down in a way that you know that I'm kind of excited to go back west, you know, mm -hmm. like I it's like I need that rhythm in me again. But it is it it's it's also like going back into poetry, you know. I, like I, I mean I, when we came in, we saw your book, the This Is an Uprising book, and I was just saying that your reading list is incredible. And so, like, that, you you know, my stomach is growling. <laughs> but, you know, but, like, all the books, like, you you share, like, hey, check this out, or I was reading this. Like, I go after it because I know that there's something in there for me. And so it's it's even that. It's, like, just saying, like, language is meaningful. Like, now I need to value it. Like, so treating these things as, like, these sacred conversations, these mm. private conversations, these things that I can be changed by. But it, it's hard. It's not easy. Like I, and I have really bad anxiety. So this last few months have been rough, but one thing that Natalie does that I really appreciate and she does this thing and I try to do it too. She just says, how are you doing? How's your heart? Mm. And I think 
I think that's something that I've really, I do, I do that to myself. Like I'll ask myself, how are you doing today? My right? father does it every morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? And, and being, and looking in the mirror and saying, okay, this is what I feel. This is what I, okay. Well, what can you do about that? Or if you're feeling great, hey, keep that up. Right. Yeah. Or you might not be able to do anything about it. And I think that, um, you know, that's what poetry kind of offers us at times is this ability to check in with ourselves. Um, but I also think it's really important to check in. And in some ways, uh, Natalie did this for me a few weeks ago. She was like, hey, what's going on? And it sometimes it's just that, that checking in that, um, that helps. You know, and particularly because I think when you're out there trying to do some of the things that we're interested in doing, um, and this is not a poor me thing, this is just a, the reality of things. Like, uh, you feel called to, to, to stand in certain ways. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's difficult, and you get stepped on and shat on. And, um, and so I think it's, it's, um, it's great to know. One of the things that's great to know is that even when I'm going through this, I know there are other people that are out there fighting a good fight, too, and that helps. Like, I know Natalie. I know Ricky Laurentis is going to be out there holding mm-hmm. it down, right? I know Samaz is going to be holding it. I know there's going to be people like, nah, this bullshit will not stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And I think also just letting letting yourself be... It's like that poem, I, I feel fucked up. Mm-hmm. Like, letting yourself be that way. Like, I'm, I'm done trying to pretend, like... Why? Who am I trying to pretend for? My father is a, a pretty incredible guy, but when he wakes up in the morning, that's what he says. He he says, "Body, have I been good to you?" And of course, the answer is sometimes not. He's like, "Well, I'm gonna do better. You know, I'm gonna do better today." And just like, do the next best thing. You know, like, what's the next best thing? And this idea that. Like, to be able to say, like, God, I don't feel good today. I don't know how I'm going to get through this, yeah. you know? And sometimes just to let a friend know that. And it seems weird. Like, you know, we have all these ideas of, like, self-care, self-care. But you know what? Like, we didn't get here without loving the hell out of ourselves. Yeah. You know what? Like, honestly, and to yeah. think of, like, what our parents have been through mm-hmm. and what their parents have been through. Like, I'm like, Natalie, you better love yourself you were made good. You were made exactly by someone right. who loves you. Get your shit together. Yeah, and you, yeah. If nothing else today, you love yourself. Yeah. And sometimes that just means like, I can't do that thing right now. Yeah. And sometimes it means like, I have some shit to write and I need to sit down and write it. Get out of it. You know, so it's, I don't know, it's crazy. Like this, this world has got everybody reset and, and about fucking time, I feel like we needed a good reset. Mm-hmm. You know, a good hard reset, like the kind, like that Buzz Lightyear kind, like in Toy Story mm-hmm. 3 where he got stuck on Spanish, <laughs> and they tried to flip the switch on his back, and it what didn't it didn't reset it because he needed a hard reset, so they had to get the screwdriver out and take the little panel off his back and get in his body and reset it. That's awesome. Like that's a hard reset, right. and we fucking needed a hard reset. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, like, I feel like I even, I constantly need one. Yeah. And I now it's like, hey, it, it reminds me of what the elders are saying. Like, we're all going to show up at the table. Like, we're all going to show up, you know, on that mountaintop. We're all going to show up on that hillside. And that's finally what it's going to take. You know? Mm-hmm. Now I'm ready to go to war. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
those are some good words. I, I love thinking about it that way, and I also feel so fucking angry because the people who really need a reset are not necessarily getting one, and they're not coming to the table, but I think... They might not. Yeah. But if we do... Yeah. You know, like, just think. I just think, like, I mean, I really do think, like, I came from a reservation. They could have quit at any time. Mm-hmm. And here I am, like, like, the life I have is such a lucky life. Mm-hmm. And I just think, this happened because my parents got up every morning. That's all they did. They got up and worked. They got up and worked. They got up and worked. And it's like, okay, I, this is a gift. Now what can I do? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to have to work. It's it's uncomfortable as hell. It's, you know, sad sometimes. It's hurtful. but And also, like, it's easier when you're standing next to you. or You know what I mean? Like, that's... Yeah. I think uh, I think about that so much. Like, I was talking to my mom right after the election. It was kind of the person I wanted to talk to. Uh, partly because she lived through 60s, the 50s, 70s, had me in 1980. And I, I mean, she lived through American apartheid, right? The end of American apartheid. I don't call it segregation because that makes it sound too nice. We're used to hearing the word segregation. So I like to call it apartheid because it makes us think of South Africa, which is what it was. And yeah, that's I, true. Segregation is too smooth. smooth. It's too oh, segregate. You know, it was just that you kept the peas away from the carrots. You know what I mean? No, this wasn't peas away from carrots. This is whooping motherfuckers' head, not allowing them to live in certain neighborhoods, redlining districts, right? And I said, I asked her. I said, you know, I didn't get to speak to her until the Sunday after the election, and she says, this feels exactly like the '60s. She was like, this feels exactly, and I was like, I was thinking like 57. She was like, I was, she was like, I was too young then. Maybe it feels like 50s. But she was like, it feels exactly like the 60s. She was like, the air, the tension, the not knowing what's going to happen next. She was like, we're back. And it was funny because she said that, and then I was at this music concert. I was at a music festival with Stevie Wonder uh, performing, and he was talking about the disrespect and the racism that Obama was getting. And he says, he was like, I don't know how this happened. And he said, and this was in like 2012, 2013. He said, but we're, he said, we've moved back to the 60s. He was like, this is exactly the way it was in the 60s. And he was cussing a lot. And I didn't know Stevie Wonder even cussed, right? He was like, this is fucked up. You see how they treat it? I was like, oh my God, Stevie Wonder cusses, you know? I thought that Stevie Wonder was like Jesus, you know? He just didn't cuss. Um, but uh, it was really interesting to hear elders talk about how we're actually, like, you know, there's this idea of progress. Mm-hmm. And I've never really, like, I think since, like, maybe about 20, I think it was when it, when Hurricane Katrina happened, I started to disbelieve in progress. That was my, like, moment where I was like, oh, actually, we're the same people. We could gas some people. We could gas a few million folks. Mm-hmm. We, we don't, we're not outside of that. Mm-hmm. We, we're actually not far from that. And, and for me, it was watching how people responded to black folks in Katrina and helping out in Katrina, helping out with, with evacuees uh, in Texas and watching them not being allowed out of stadiums. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the Army Corps of Engineers, too, the same yep. fuckers who are yeah. doing the standing rock stuff. That, for me, I was like, oh, there's, there's we don't progress. There's no progress. That's, some bull, that's a bullshit-ass narrative. 
and also the the harm and genocide that's been done in the name of progress yeah yeah is unbelievable yeah you know like even even this notion like that's why i'm just so glad i feel like america is waking up because now this is i'm setting this aside from who won the election if hillary had won we'd be killing people left and right still and what what would change and and i i mean that like in a bubble i mean that in the vacuum of like america would have just kept going this is a you know of course we're always looking at the silver lining like okay now what but we're we're waking up we're waking up we're getting frustrated we're realizing like protest yes but then what's on the other side of protest like that's just the step you're moving towards something. What are we going to do differently? You know, even small things like that people, the Black Friday stuff, like people are changing their minds. Yeah. You know, like the, the Sami tribe from, from uh, Scandinavia came down, mm-hmm. you know, and this group, so they sent people down there. They're the last indigenous peoples in Europe mm-hmm. because Europe was just efficient, you know. Mm-hmm. We're, America is like... Europe Junior, so they were not as efficient. With their genocide. Yeah, with their genocide. <laughs> so they're coming back around. They're like, let's, 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 let's finish this up. <laughs> bring it back around one more time, boys. Um, but you know, like that that they ha- they've had banks withdraw. Mm. And like I, I just feel like we like my friends in Europe and other countries were like, you guys need to like toughen up. Mm. They're like, we've been dealing with these dictators again and again. You need to toughen up and realize your power. And that's, I feel like, what is exciting to me, even about poetry. It's like, all of a sudden, like, what if we all remembered how powerful we can be, like, together? Because, I mean, the, the people who brought us here didn't survive one by one by one, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. They, they learned how to take care of each other, how to hide each other, how to, you know, send each other, you know, here and there. Like, yeah. And I just feel like, you know what, like, it's it's a little bit primal, but that's what we need. Yeah. Like, why not go back to that? Mm-hmm. You know, why not let poems carry the story the way they used to mm-hmm. carry the story? You know, I don't know. And tomorrow morning I wake up sad again, but right now that's how I feel like. Yeah, I'm with you, Natalie. <laughs> well, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and Roger's going to be here. And we're going to be so, probably hungover. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of, All right, let's, I want to get something to eat. Yeah, let's before. stop. Yeah. Um, Thank you both so, so, so much. This has been episode 17 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. Music by Moses Zucker-Gorin, design work by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and Zach Tackett. Commonplace advisor is Daniel Schiffman. Thank you to the Commonplace patrons and wonderful presses and publishers that are supporting the podcast, especially this month, Copper Canyon Press. At the end of the last episode, I said thank you to an anonymous donor. That was one of many weird and dopey things that I said. Anonymous donor, my dad, asked me what I wanted for my birthday, and I said, a new microphone. Thank you, dad. 
By the time you all hear this, I will have tried out the new microphone at the Writers Resist event. I have no idea how it will work out, but we've got so much great stuff coming up, including a conversation and brand new work by Terrence Hayes. Here's to hoping that the ensuing catastrophe that is our unrepre president will be a good, hard, Buzz Lightyear reset. Here's to hoping we all show up at the table. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>